Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know what I mean. This week, we read the Torah portion Shemini. Now, if you thought we read the Torah portion Shemini last week, you're right, we did. It's this weird and peculiar thing in the Jewish calendar inside Israel and outside of Israel as uh, at the end of Pesach, we end on seven days, and so we get to Parshat Shemini, but the rest of the world does eight days, and so we double up this Torah portion of the Reform Movement so that we're in alignment. Everybody's reading Shemini this week. We read it last week also. Anyhow, the Parsha means the eighth, and it refers to the eighth day of the opening of the tabernacle, that celebration, which is uh, really the first full functioning day of the Mishkan, of the sanctuary in the desert. After seven days of special inaugural rituals performed by Moses and Aaron and the priests. And so on this official opening day, Moses commands Aaron and the people to bring sacrifices to God in the tabernacle. He says in Torah, for today God will appear to you. Which is, after all, the whole point of the tabernacle to be a meeting place between human beings and the divine. Aaron and his sons prepare an animal sacrifice as they are commanded and as they hoped for, the glory of God was shown to the entire nation of Israel. And a fire went out from God and consumed the burnt offering and the fats that were on the altar. We usually skip over this part, I know, when we read Torah. And the entire nation saw it and celebrated and they fell on their faces and they prayed. This is the part of Leviticus that everybody says, oh, I am glad we don't do that anymore. This moment, this climax of so much work and ritual is what the tabernacle was all about. There is a palpable presence of God experienced by the entire people. Imagine God coming down into our presence in this moment. That is what the people felt in a space far larger than this and filled with hundreds of thousands of Israelites. The feeling one gets when reading this section is, it worked. We did it. We went from slavery to freedom, and now God has come down and made God's self known to us in the world. They did it. All of their effort paid off, and the people really experienced God's presence, at least according to the story. And then, unbelievably, and tragically, listen to what happens next. And now Aaron's sons, Nadav and Abihu, each took his, fan, his pan and placed in it fire and placed on it incense and brought it before Adonai, a strange fire which had not been commanded to them. And a fire went out from before Adonai, from God, and consumed them. And they died before God. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what God was referring to when he said, with those close to me I will be sanctified. And before the entire nation I will be honored. And Aaron, witnessing the death of his sons, before his very eyes, our Torah says, and Aaron was silent. I am so incredibly troubled by this week's Torah portion. It is hard to know where to begin to explain it to you. There is no reading 
of this devastating story of the death of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Abihu, by divine fire that I am comfortable with. No explanation among the dozens in the commentaries that assuages my horror at the idea that these two boys are killed by God for bringing an uncommanded sacrifice of incense. The rabbis of our tradition, they twist and they turn in exegetical knots trying to explain why somehow these two boys are deserving of such divine punishment, of being killed by divine fire. Some say that they were drunk, inebriated, that based, and they base this on the passage in the Torah that follows just nearby about the prohibition of being intoxicated while performing religious rituals. The Talmud later argues that they were killed because they were jealous of Moses and Aaron. And it relates a story that it once happened that Moses and Aaron were walking along a road and Nadav and Abihu were following behind them, Aaron's two sons. And all of Israel was walking behind Nadav and Abihu. And Nadav said to Abihu, or Abihu said to Nadav, when will these two old men die so that you and I can lead the generation? And thereupon God said to them, we will see who will bury who. For centuries, commentators have debated the meaning of what Moses meant in that last part, which is almost lost because we're still stunned that Nadav and Abihu are zapped by God. When Moses says, this is what God was referring to when he said, with those close to me I will be sanctified, and before the entire nation I will be honored. Some have the unmitigated hubris and gall to suggest that the death of these children, and they were children, was necessary to sanctify the name of God, completely denying that Judaism was a response to the abomination of human and namely child sacrifice, that nothing is more an anathema to our tradition and Jewish theology than the death of innocence in the name of God. I can reason away, away that, that first position as one of convenient, if a bit lazy, biblical criticism. It is far too simple to say that this relates to that because they are next to each other in the Torah. And I can dismiss the second argument that the boys were jealous as a blatant historical revision, inventing a story after the fact to justify prior events. But this third argument, that somehow their death was necessary to serve some greater theological purpose, that God needed their blood to prove a point about God's unmitigated power and authority, I cannot accept this on any level whatsoever. I cannot and could not believe in a God that would want such a payment in human life. And I could not participate in, let alone lead, a religion that believed such foolishness. It is fitting and appropriate and extremely informative that this Parsha Shemini comes just a few days after Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day that implores us to remember and never forget the death of six million innocent Jews who were also consumed by fire. But the similarity between this parsha and the Shoah is not the fire. 
Rather, it is the theological challenge to our own sense of justice. Nadav and Abihu did not do anything that seems to merit a death sentence. Neither did the Jews who perished in the Shoah. But this week's Parsha and the remembrance of the Shoah challenge our understanding of God's justice. The Holocaust forces us to re-examine our theology. Richard Rubenstein, a conservative rabbi, a scholar, and former university president, who wrote a famous book whose title probably says it all. Its title is After Auschwitz. He wrote the following. The thread uniting God and man, uniting heaven and earth, has been broken by the Shoah. We stand in a cold, silent, unfeeling cosmos, unaided by any purposeful power beyond our own resources. After Auschwitz, what else can a Jew say about God? There was a long-standing tradition in Judaism to blame ourselves for disasters that have come our way. We joke about Jewish guilt, but it's true. The Talmud says that when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple the first time in the 6th century BCE, he was the rod of God, punishing the Jews for their lapsing into idol worship and abandoning of the ways of God. And when the Romans destroyed the temple a second time, a bit over 600 years later, the rabbis didn't see a level of sin that would have justified such a punishment. And so they developed the idea, and it's when we talk about it, Tisha B'Av, that the temple was destroyed because of sinat kinam, because of senseless hatred and gratuitous hatred between fellow Jews. I don't think that I could have a personal relationship with a God who would use the Nazis as a tool for punishing Jews who had sinned in an earlier life. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with such a God. How could I possibly pray to a God who would say such a thing? How could I possibly rely on such a God? How could I call God my fortress, my rock, my salvation? And so instead, I take comfort in Maimonides, which is not always easy to do. The Rambam is not easy to take comfort in sometimes. The Rambam said that there are three kinds of evil, three kinds of suffering in the world. The first are bad things that happen as a side effect of the way God created the world. This would include earthquakes and cancer. The second type is of evil is the evil that people do to each other, like wars and murder and terrorism. And the third type of evil are bad things that people do to themselves, abusing drugs, eating too much, all of those things. And so for Rambam, the evil of the Holocaust is a byproduct of free will. God does not create evil. This kind of evil happens because God gave us this wonderful, incredible, and yet extremely powerful gift of free will, which gives, up the, gives us the opportunity to choose. And sadly, some, and thank God not all, but sadly, some people choose to follow an evil, wicked path to hurt and kill other people. Hitler succeeded because no one stopped him. 
not the millions of Germans who accepted his demands for blind obedience. Hermann Goring said, I have no personal conscience. Adolf Hitler is my conscience. Yamach Shamo. And not the British, whose Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain kept thinking the Nazis would be content with Austria or Poland or Czechoslovakia. And not even the Americans. We all remember America's role in beating the Nazis and Canada's too. But less, is remembered, less remembered is that two days before Berlin, France, Austria, and New Zealand declared war on Germany in September 1939, the United States declared itself neutral. It took another two years before the United States decided to enter into the war in 1941, and that was only after they were attacked on Pearl Harbor. American ships and planes started firing on German war vessels, and then three months later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And a few days after that, Germany declared war on the United States. How might history have turned out differently if America had joined the war in 1939 instead of 1941? How many millions of lives would have been saved? Dr. Zev Garber, a professor of rabbinics at the Jewish Theological Seminary, the conservative movement seminary, wrote the following. He said, the, the message of the Shoah for the generations after the Shoah and for future generations is not survival alone. There is something more important than survival, and that is preventing moral bankruptcy. As long as children anywhere in the world are being taught to be morally bankrupt, to blindly follow demagogues into the cesspool of hate, our children's and grandchildren's future, he said, is not secure. And so it is in this analysis, the sinners aren't the people who died, of course. The sinners are the people that lived and didn't stop Hitler, that did nothing and could have done something. People who would judge those who perished like the rabbis of our tradition that try to rationalize why God needed these two young boys, Nadav and Abihu, or even, and I shudder even to share this with you, but you know it to be true, the rogue theology that exists within some corners of Judaism today that says that the Holocaust was necessary for the establishment of the state of Israel. In the decision of the Knesset to establish the 27th of Nisan as Yom HaShoah, as the day of remembrance of the Shoah and the revolt in the ghetto, Mordechai Naruch, in the name of the House Committee of the Israeli Knesset, said in the establishing of this holiday, or this Memorial Day, I should say, perhaps by the merit of their blood spilled like water, we achieved a state and the beginning of redemption. Unbelievable. Tying together the Holocaust and the state of Israel with the implication of suffering and reward, it is infuriating. Who asked the six million? Who asked us if it was worth the price? Proponents of such arguments should instead be judging themselves and the ones who didn't take action to stop what was going on in Germany in the 1930s rather than use God as a convenient justification for such horrors. And with this, I'll conclude. Rabbi Barry Laff observes that Hitler, of course, was not the first one to kill Jews, 
But Hitler had a frightening new twist. In the past, when Jews were persecuted, they were generally offered a way out at the same time, convert or die. When Ferdinand and Isabella took control in Spain, they offered the Jews three choices, convert, leave, or die. Most left, some converted, and a few died. In medieval Europe, the oppressors were continually trying to get the Jews to convert to Christianity. And some took the easy way out and converted, but most Jews refused. The majority were proud to be Jews, and they insisted on staying Jewish, sometimes even dying rather than let a piece of pork touch their lips. Hitler's twist, however, and this is among the many cruelties of the Shoah, was to take away the conversion option. He didn't care what you believed. If you had a Jew too close to you in your family tree, you were destined for the gas chambers. And even people who had converted to Christianity or whose parents had converted to Christianity, they were killed for being Jewish. For someone to die rather than convert is a death that we call Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name. It's the Jewish version of martyrdom. The people that the Nazis murdered weren't even given the opportunity to die the death of Kiddush Hashem. They weren't given even any choice. The ones who, had, who would have converted to Christianity died right next to those who would have chosen to die rather than let a piece of pork touch their lips. The dignity of being able to give one's life for Kiddush Hashem was taken away from the poor and unwilling martyrs of the Shoah. And this is one reason, I think, that I prefer the Hebrew term Shoah over the Greek-derived term holocaust. Holocaust is a word, is a Greek word for burnt offering, a sacrifice that was completely burnt up on the altar. It takes us right back to the story of Aaron and his sons. And I don't want to go back to that story. Shoah, on the other hand, means catastrophe or calamity. The victims of the Shoah did not willingly offer themselves as sacrifices like Nadav and Abihu, they were taken, not offered. But willingly or not, they were killed. They weren't given a choice. There is no theologically satisfactory answer to the issues raised by the Shoah. Just as I have not found one for the issues raised by this week's Torah portion, the death of Nadav and Abihu. After all, even if we say that evil comes from people, there have been times when God has chosen to intervene miraculously to save us. Just last week at Pesach, we told the story of the exodus of Egypt, from Egypt, when God redeemed a bunch of powerless slaves from mighty Egypt. The Maccabees defeat, or defeated the far more powerful Assyrian Greeks, and many hold that Israel's victory over the Arab armies in 1948 and 1967 was nothing short of a miracle. And how does God choose when a situation deserves a miracle and when it doesn't? There are some theological questions that we can wrestle with and wrestle with, but never come up with a completely satisfactory solution. When we wear ourselves out from trying to make sense of the senseless, the only response that we are left with is the same response that Aaron had 
when he was told of the death of his sons. Vayidom Acharon, and Aaron was silent, and sometimes so are we.